But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10 today. So in chapter 10, uh, as we've been going through here, from 8, 9, and 10, Paul has been speaking about Christian liberty and the idea of being free in Christ and uh, the freedom we have to basically make certain decisions on our own, uh, lots of prayer and, and studying of God's word, but the freedom in God doesn't say do this or do that. We have to decide. And so chapter 10 uh, basically kind of closes out his instructions about Christian liberty. And the situation that brought this to the forefront was um, whether or not the Corinthians in this church in Corinth that's uh, full of, of false idol worship, temples everywhere like fast food restaurants would have these feasts and uh, they would have uh, huge meals that were dedicated to these idols. The question that is kind of arisen of whether Christians should participate in these feasts or not. And specifically, whether they should eat the food that's been sacrificed to these idols. So like you throw a steak before Buga Baga Baga, whoever that is, and they go, can't eat that steak because it's been cursed by Buga Baga Baga, right? So um, that's the question. And you have uh, the strong Christians or the mature Christians uh, or the, the, the guys who understand these are, these are not gods. There's no such thing as another god. There's a big rock that's been carved to look like some chubby weird guy and this meat is not cursed. There's nothing wrong with it. You have those guys saying, hey, you know, it's harmless. We can eat what we want. And then you have what Paul calls the weak, which is kind of sounds derogatory, but really it's the, the younger Christians, the newer Christians who are like, I don't know if I can do this. This seems wrong. Uh, it's difficult, and why are you doing it? So you have this tension between the two of what you should do and what will be best. And so um, Paul has, up to this point, kind of avoid, avoided saying, do this. And instead, he's given principles about how to make these kind of decisions. And some of those principles are like, you know, be, do what is loving to your brother and won't cause them to sin, and, and what's out of love for the gospel, and those types of of things. And so he's used up to this point many times, and specifically in chapter 9, his own life as an example of what it looks like uh, to basically live by a dual commitment to deny one's own rights that you have the right to do. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing, quote, wrong with doing it. You have freedom in Christ to participate or to abstain or whatever. <clears throat> that commitment uh, with becoming all things to all people so that um, basically, believers can be built up in the faith and that new believers can be one for the faith. Basically, he's calling all Christians to define their daily lives, all the decisions we make in our daily lives, not just the major ones, but even the small ones, to define our daily lives and decision-making by a love for people and a love for the gospel. That's what pretty much he's arguing for. That should be our default mode. And though this kind of life is rewarding, if not here, in eternity, um, it's hard to do. And Paul compares it to a race and says it is, it is a hard thing to live a gospel-centered life. And it's not, I've decided or kind of come to the point, it's not just like a normal race, like around a track or through a, a street. It's more like a steeplechase. And I mentioned steeplechase to a couple people like, what's that? I'm like, isn't it like an Olympic event? I think. So the steeplechase, right, is a, is a race around the track with all kinds of obstacles in it, right? You got hurdles and like water hazards and fire. I don't know what. You have all kinds of things that they are trying to navigate as they run. So it's not just a normal race, though it is a race. And so Paul's going, or he ended chapter 9 where we were last week, with declaring his own intention to discipline himself, to work hard, basically, so that he would not be disqualified from the race by abusing his freedom or maybe being lazy or whatever in how he ran his steeplechase. And so, that's the Apostle Paul, right? A guy that seemed like he had things together. A guy that wrote, like, half the New Testament and planted, like, all the churches in there and suffered incredibly for the gospel, like, you're going to be disqualified? And the thing that we have to see is that Paul recognizes, like the Apostle Paul recognizes that even the best of men can make a, what he later says in Timothy, a shipwreck of their faith. Even the best of men, even the men who seem like they have it all together, women obviously as well, they can make a shipwreck of their faith if they're not careful. 
So up to this point, as I said, the apostle has not told the strong what to do specifically, like don't do this or do this. He's allowed them to decide what is right. But in his final remarks, as he gets into chapter 10, he seems to warn them about being overconfident in their decision making. Overconfident as a, as a runner or an athlete, right? So I'm like, I got this, no problem. And Paul wants the Corinthians to do this. He wants the Corinthians to make decisions that please God. And I know that many of us were just sold out to the gospel where I want us to be here like pleasing God. Well, I can please God because Christ pleased him. It's not about me. I understand that. But Paul's going to make a comparison to Israel today. A lot of history. So I'm going to give you a lot of passages. I'm not going to be able to read them all. And, And the overarching thing is like these guys were supposed to please God and they didn't. And so Paul wants us to please God, and and decisions that please God, quite frankly, are decisions that lead us to worship Him. Because any time we sin, we are worshiping something else. And so, I might as well say, God doesn't want us to sin. Okay, there's that easier to swallow? Because really, what we're talking about is God wants us to worship Him, and that's not just for His glory, but that's where our joy exists. And so this is what Paul wants them to do. And so he basically says that they are free in their faith to do what they want. They are and have been blessed with wisdom. They are strong, but they are not invincible to temptation. The enemy will use, catch this, the blessings of God, the privileges of God, the awesome things of God, the good things that he has given us to lead us away from him. The enemy will use those things. In fact, they're some of his best tools. So to make his point, he's going to turn to the history of Israel, which is an awesome history lesson, but I'm going to break it down to you, so you're going to have to kind of follow really carefully of what's being said. And he's talking about their history, which is somewhat tragic in order to warn them. So here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware. Right, here comes his warning. Brothers, so he includes himself. That our fathers, now he's speaking to about Israel in the past. He's not speaking to all Jewish Christians. We need to understand that God's people began the garden and came through Israel is where we're at today. We are the one people that God has been leading. And so he says, in other words, the history here is the history of the church in many ways. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, the most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, church, today's disciples, that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay? I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm going to pray that we will receive this sermon because um, it was difficult, honestly. It was confusing to make a bridge, and I, hopefully it's been accomplished, but we'll see. Let the Spirit make that connection. So let me just pray real quick. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is your word. I know that it can transform us from the inside out, and I pray you'll speak to us today about our own temptations, sober us to the weakness of our own flesh, and then remind us of what Jesus Christ has done to make us strong. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So, Paul gives us this lesson from Israel's history. He warns the Corinthians this. Don't forget about what happened to the others who came before you who began to be and were overconfident in their blessing. And so he describes the great blessing and privilege that Israel experienced in the Old Testament, specifically in the Exodus, the book of Exodus, but the Exodus, If you don't know the story, very quickly, God sent Moses, who was an 80-year-old fugitive at the time, back to Egypt, came to Pharaoh, who was the most powerful leader in the world at the time, leading the greatest empire at the time, and said, let my people go. His people have been uh, down in Israel for 400 years, been in slavery a long time, they've been killing their babies and doing all kinds of horrible things, and Pharaoh said, why would I ever let your people go? Who sent you? He says, Yahweh sent me. 
To which Pharaoh responds, I don't know the name of that God. And Moses says, well, he's going to show you his name. And he does so in ten plagues. First, middle, and last. This is my name. And he crushes this empire. And eventually Pharaoh releases and relents. And God frees his people from slavery and leads them out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. And when all these statements, these are all the things that happened along that journey. He says they were all under the cloud, meaning they were led by the presence of God in the form of a cloud. It wasn't like, where should we go next? It's like, boop, there it is. I don't think it made that noise, but there was a cloud there that they followed. Okay? Pretty simple to follow God's direction there. It says they all passed through the Red Sea. We know, or maybe are familiar with the Red Sea, where Pharaoh's army was coming down. God said, as Israel was freaking out, what are we going to do? He's like, just sit and watch. And he busts the sea open. Israel goes across. Pharaoh tries to follow, and they get swallowed up and crushed. Pretty powerful demonstration of the God you are following. Gives you a tremendous amount of confidence, I would believe, at that point. It says they were all baptized into Moses, which is specifically, could be speaking about the law, but probably specifically under Moses' leadership. This guy is leader. This guy speaks for God. This guy is going to direct us or lead us to the promised land. All of the same spiritual food. God actually blessed them miraculously through food with manna. Uh, it was a bread-like substance that would basically be there for them miraculously, and they ate. God provided. He also drank from the same spiritual drink. They talk about a rock. They, at one point, complained about not having water. There was a rock that basically Moses spoke to and spurted out water. And Jewish history and legend says that that rock, which Paul later says is Christ, followed them around. Can you imagine a rock following you around? Like, we're going to have enough water? Well, there's the rock, right? Like, like cool. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Doesn't say that in the Bible, but Jewish History, if you will, kind of says this is what happened. Who knows if it really did. But ultimately, Israel experienced a closeness with God and was in, in the midst of God's presence more than any other people. Like God led them, He fought for them, He protected them, He provided for them, He dwelled with them, His visible presence was in the midst of them, and it was undeniable because there were tangible proofs of his relationship. Is God going to provide for me? Boom, bread. Is God going to protect me? Boom, he would defeat an army when they should never, these guys had like pitchforks and sticks, right? And they're defeating armies. So Paul basically connects Israel's experience with the Corinthian experience in a very real way. See, through faith, he says this, or in the very beginning, they are dwelt with God's Spirit. They, are, they have God's same presence dwelling within them. Their heart is the temple of God. He says that their, their freedom from slavery, okay, what you once were, guys, is just as dramatic as the, as the Red Sea freedom. They were baptized, not into Moses, under the name of Jesus. Jesus is their Lord, Jesus is their leader, Jesus is directing them. And every time they gather, like we gather today, they commune together, and what do they partake of? The bread and the wine, which again is the spiritual food and the spiritual drink of God who is Christ. And so he says, look, you are having this, you are Israel, you are blessed, you are privileged, you have all of these things. But the fact that the Corinthians experience God's grace does not mean that whatever they do will please God. And he shows Israel as an example of that. See, the most sobering part of this text, and you may have caught it, may not have, is the use of the words all and most. It says all Israel experienced blessing. They all experienced the miracles. They all saw the presence. They all experienced the grace. But most failed to please God. That's a sermon in itself. That's the scary statement. And it's somewhat of an understatement because out of those who left during the Exodus, that generation, the only one to survive the wilderness were actually Joshua and Caleb. Actually, only two pleased God, if we want to be specific. 
Most of God's redeemed people didn't just die, they were killed by God. And that term overthrown, some of your Bibles might say scattered in the wilderness like dead bodies. Because God took them around in circles for 40 years so that they would die. So God killed them because they didn't please him. That's sobering. Most of God's redeemed people had forgotten what God had done. Most of God's redeemed people had become ungrateful. Most of God's redeemed people became comfortably overconfident. Most of God's redeemed people became idolatrous and refused to follow him. Most of God's people, redeemed people, assumed too much, risked too little, and disobeyed too often. Now in Corinth, Paul is speaking to The church has experienced, again, the same kind of blessings together. And now Paul warns them of the danger of most of the church may prove unfaithful because they are spiritually overconfident. He's speaking to the strong, the mature, the ones that go, I got this, I got the gospel right. I understand, I'm free in Christ. And he says, look, you guys are like arrogant runners who are quickly going to fall if you're not careful. The overconfident, here's why they fail, and maybe you're in this place. If you feel strong as a Christian, if you feel mature in your faith, he is writing to you and warning you just to be careful. Because what happens when you become overconfident spiritually? Like, I just I know exactly what God wants me to do. What happens is they fail simply because they begin to reject God's word and they don't spend too much time in it. I know it. I know what the Bible says. They refuse to pray. That becomes limited. They don't want to talk to God. They start ignoring the counsel of the church, which was Corinth did. People are suing each other and not even asking the church what they should do. Spiritually overconfident people start to underestimate the enemy that they're actually fighting against. They underestimate how powerful he is. They begin to disrespect the call that they have as God's people. Well, you know, I can just do what I want. I don't have to stand for anything. And more than anything, what happens with spiritually overconfident people is they think they hear the Spirit a lot. And they stop testing those spirits according to Scripture to see whether they're true, like 1 John 4 1 says. It says that spirits talk all the time. And we have to test them to see whether they're actually true, whether they align with God's Word. So he warns them, you guys are on the edge, perhaps in wilderness, because Israel had it all. I mean, they couldn't. They they had God speaking directly to them. They had God visibly with them. They had God throwing down food from the skies. And they became overconfident and fell. And Israel's failure, I think, for me, specifically this week, was sobering me to the weakness of my flesh. Our flesh is weak. Incredibly weak. And God led Israel into the wilderness. Which means, I believe God intentionally and often leads us into wilderness. And He leads us into wilderness experiences so that He can expose us, as He did Israel, to temptation. Why would He want to do that? Well, if according to James 1, the purpose of it is to strengthen our faith. It's to strengthen our faith. He led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It's to strengthen our faith, but without doubt, the enemy intends to take that same temptation, or call it trial, or call it test, whatever you'd like. He intends to take that same temptation and lead us to idolatry. Paul does not want us to be unaware of our wilderness, and here's what he wants us to say. We look at little decisions we make in our life, and we think, that's not that big a deal. Romans 12, if you ever read that, says that our spiritual sacrifice... Our acts of worship are the behaviors and decisions we make. In other words, every decision we make is an opportunity to worship. And it is either going to be worship of the true God or worship of the false false gods. It is going to be worship, a spiritual act of worship. What you do with your body, what you do with your mind, what you do with your money, every decision is going to be and is 
an act of worship. And Israel's temptations here, he's going to lay them out for us in showing us how our decisions can easily lead to false worship. The different temptations that come to try and captivate us. So let me just go through them. He lays them out very specifically in verse 7. The first one is, how do we fall? How do we fail? We fall for these temptations. The first one is the temptation to be religious. What's that mean? Well, verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's actually a quote out of Exodus 32. If you don't know what happened in Exodus 32, I'll remind you is the uh, story or the um, event of the golden calf. And the golden calf was when Israel came out and was taken to the bottom of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses and Joshua went up. Joshua didn't go all the way up, but Moses was up there. And what was he receiving? The law of God. God was saying, here's the covenant I'm going to make with you. Here are the Ten Commandments I'm going to give to you. And meanwhile, Aaron, Moses' brother and high priest of Israel, is leading his people astray. They build a false idol in the form of a golden calf, complete with altar and burnt offerings, and they have a complete worship feast. And their feast degenerates into what Paul says here, play, which was basically a virtual orgy. And all of Israel believed they were worshiping. They believed they were worshiping. It felt like worship. It looked like worship. It satisfied something inside of them. They were worshiping this golden calf. Meanwhile, God is giving them commandments, the first two of which are, have no other gods before me and make no graven image. Yet they thought they were worshiping. And we know perhaps the end of the story when Moses comes down and breaks the commandments literally and goes back up has God make them new ones after he makes them eat the altar that they created. So there's a real temptation for us to worship, to do church, right? Or do life, to worship in a way that feels spiritual but is not biblical. There are lots of ways we can worship, but if it's not biblical, guess what? It is false. Feel good. Spirituality. Decisions that make you feel good and even, I just feel spiritual doing it, can certainly lead to idolatry. As we see here, there's a temptation to be religious and spiritual. There's also temptation, Paul goes into verse 8, to be irreligious. To say it doesn't really matter. What do you say in verse 8? He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So Paul is actually recounting again a story out of Numbers 25. You might want to read it at some point. I'll summarize it for you. In essence, Israel begins to, at least in the ESV it says, whore with the daughters of Moab. And they were invited by the Moabites in whose land they are nearby to come and enjoy their pagan feasts, which inevitably led them to bowing down to their pagan gods. So they didn't go into the world, go in the Moab to point the pagans to God. They went in to indulge in the world and became pagan. They loved the world in this particular way, sexually, which for Corinth is actually fairly germane to their situation. They love the world more than they loved God. And as a result of their sexually driven idolatry, God sends a plague that kills 23,000 people in one day. Do you think God was upset? Did you know that in the first one where God came down or said, Moses, you need to go down. What's going on the golden calf there is really messed up. You know what he actually told Moses? Before Moses went down, he said, Moses, I'm going to go and kill everybody and start over with you. And Moses interceded and said, 
Please don't. And God relented. God is not excited about false worship. And these guys, it happens religiously and it happens irreligiously where they indulge in the world. They, they live in Israel, deliberately indulge, and they were living as if they could do whatever they want without divine consequence. I'm God's kid. Not to worry about holiness. I mean, he's got it taken care of. And in some sense, as we believe in the gospel, that's true, but there's a very huge difference between sinning and falling into sin and intentionally and deliberately pursuing it, which is what's happening here. There is a real temptation to love the world. To love the world. But guess what? The Bible is so clear. You cannot love the world and love Jesus at the same time. You can't. And indulgent living, whatever happens to be the indulgence, doesn't have to be sexually, indulgent living leads to idolatry. It will lead away from God every time because that thing will not, what captivates you in the beginning will enslave you later. And that's what happens here. So there's a temptation. Some of us are tempted to be religious. We are spiritual nut jobs, thinking we're praising God and we're not. And some of us are irreligious weirdos. Now I say us, like we fall in one of the two, honestly. Where we believe we can indulge and we'll be okay. We believe we can sin. Hey, I'm living in sin, no big deal. It was a big deal to God. That's all Paul's saying. He didn't say, hey, God's going to kill you all, Corinth. He's like, well, look, do you see what God did? Third thing, there's only four. Temptations. You've got temptation to be religious, temptation to be irreligious. And then he goes in verse 9, the temptation to be ungrateful. Well, that doesn't seem that, that big a deal. Oh, contraire. Verse 9, he says, and speaking of Israel, I think this is curious. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. What? They're testing Jesus? Yes. We can talk about old Jesus in the Old Testament. They not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So this is the story out of Numbers 21. You should read it. I will summarize it for you. As Israel's journey in the wilderness continue, they grow impatient. As you might as well, going in circles. And they begin to speak out, which is not the first time, against their leadership. And they also speak out, specifically it says, against their God. And they begin to ask, which is a very familiar phrase for them, or question for them to ask, like, did you bring us out here to die, Moses? Like, we loved it back in slavery when our babies were being thrown in the water. It was so awesome. Did you bring us out here to die? That's how screwed up they are at this point. And they complain. And here's a very specific complaint. As you read the text, you'll see. They begin to complain that they don't have enough food. That's why they're going to die. But they don't just complain they don't have enough food because they actually have enough food. God is continuing to bless them with manna. But he basically, they say, yeah, we don't have enough food and the food we have is worthless. Okay, let's think about that. God, you haven't given us enough food. God, you haven't given me enough. And what you have given me is worthless. You ever had that conversation with God? Ever had that thought? So, in response, a good God, who's been providing all the time, sends fiery serpents. I don't know what that means, but it can't be good. Right? (laughs) Fiery serpents which bite and kill many people. Moses prays. And the Lord instructs him to place a bronze serpent up on a pole, which is very much pointing us to the cross. And he says, whoever looks upon this bronze serpent, upon this pole that's set up, will be healed. Couldn't be more overtly gospel if it tried. And so Paul says, you shouldn't test Jesus as they did. And two things characterize Israelites' test. Like, how do I know if I'm testing God? We kind of think of testing like Gideon's fleece, right? Put it out. Okay, God, do this. 
That's not what characterized their test here. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read through it and go, oh, is that testing God? That seems kind of odd. Here's what characterized their test. First of all, they did not trust that God would provide what they thought they needed. That was the first part. They didn't trust him. But more so, as I said, they were not thankful for what God had already provided. They looked past all the graces that sat before him at what they didn't have. And their temptation to be ungrateful led them to idolatry and false worship. And God punished that. See, there's a very real temptation to deny what God can do, especially when we forget what God has already done. When you forget how God has provided, when you forget how God has taken you through the Red Sea, when you forget about how God has led you along the way, or you forget how he has led others, right? That's why we have the Bible. To say, oh wait, okay, I see right here, it looks like they, they were not going to make it. It looks like everything was lost. And we go, no, it wasn't, but it looked like it. When you begin to forget you are led to ungratefulness and ingratitude toward God, guess what that leads to? Hope in another God. That's the temptation. Last one. So we've got temptation to be religious. As we're running this life, there's going to be that temptation. Temptation to be irreligious. A temptation to be ungrateful. And then a temptation to be fearful. Although it says grumbling, I'll explain. Verse 10, he says, Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, which is death. The final temptation Paul warns us about comes from Numbers 14. You should read it. I will summarize it for you. This is at the edge of the promised land when they have, prior to that in 13, they had sent 12 spies into Canaan. Okay? Joshua and Caleb were two of those spies, and there were 10 others. Remember the song? I always sing it, right? Ten men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad. Two were good. Woo! Don't you remember that song? You guys ever go to Sunday school? My kids know that song, okay? Ten spies come back out, and two come back out with them. And ten spies go, it's horrible. There's giants there. We'll never be able to take the land. We'll be killed. Our families will be killed. It'll be horrible. Let's not go. Although God has said, take the land. Joshua and Caleb come back and go, it's ours. It's ours, man. Let's take it. God has given it to us. It's full of milk and honey. Right, So the ten guys saw all the, the obstacles and the impossibilities and Joshua and Caleb were like, look at all the blessing God's given us. Because he said it's ours. Those two reports conflict. And you can imagine who Israel went with. After hearing Joshua and Caleb declare that the land has been given to them by God, the people grumble, it says in that passage, Numbers 14, against the leadership They go so far as to try and choose a new leader to take them back to Egypt. They're like, let's vote, guys. Let's go back. Because God has clearly said go, right? God God said go. What we see this as is full out just rebellion. God has said, this is your land. I will give it to you. I know it looks impossible. Follow me. And they say, we can't follow you. In fact, they go so far as many to say, like they hide behind their families and they make all kinds of strange excuses for why they can't. The Israelites are flat out rebelling because they're fearful. Because God has said, go there. And they go, how's that going to play out? Do you realize that God doesn't often tell us how it's going to play out? He just says, don't worry, I got it. You realize when he told Abraham to leave his hometown, what he knew, his family said, go to this land you've never seen, and I'm going to make you a huge nation, though you have no kids. How's that going to work out? Don't worry about it. I got it. Do you know God, that's like God's common answer? I got it, don't worry. Just trust, go. Very rarely you say, go, oh, by the way, here are the seven things of how it's going to work out, so just to make you feel better. He says, go. And so they're on the edge of this land. They come back and report. It looks impossible, right? And they fear. The temptation to fear. There's a real temptation to believe this. This is the heart of fear. Israel began to believe that they knew better than God did. 
that they could predict how things were going to work out, even though God's word said the opposite. And they begin to believe that his commands are just too difficult to fulfill. That's just too difficult to fulfill. Disobedience leads to idolatry. Now, verse 11 says that these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. So we're supposed to learn from these things. So for us, as we see all these temptations, we are somewhere here. Whatever decisions we have to make or are going to make as individuals or as a church, it will be very tempting for us to fall into any of these things because I guarantee you, Israel had a presence of God in a way that I'm not sure we experience, but if they fell, we can fall. If they can fall into idolatry and be captivated, we can fall into idolatry and be captivated. But by God's grace, he says, he doesn't equip us to run the steeplechase without help. Here's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? There's the warning. Pride comes before the fall, as the Proverbs say. But he says, no temptation has overtaken you. He's just listed four. None have overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. I love how he doesn't say that temptation is not that big a deal. He says, God is faithful. Get your eyes off the temptation for a second. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How many times have you read that verse to yourself? You should do it one more. It's a great verse. See, temptation is a guarantee. Temptation is going to come in one of those forms or another. But we must, so we must not be underwhelmed by it. We must be aware of it. We will be tempted to become spiritual and not worship Jesus. We will be tempted to indulge in the world more than we enjoy Jesus. We will be tempted to doubt God's provision, to even test and not trust Jesus. We will be tempted to fear and not follow Jesus where he has told us we are to go. Those temptations will come guaranteed. The moment that you believe you're beyond falling, for one of them you will fall. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is incredibly weak and out of shape. But that does not mean that we don't have hope. Paul says that we should also not be overwhelmed by temptation. The hope is that not the temptation will go away, not that we'll even survive it, but that God is faithful. And he gives two comforts in that. One is that temptation comes to everyone. It's common to everyone. I push back on those who say, you don't know what I'm experiencing. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know, I will tell you this, someone does. Someone does. You are not unique in your temptation, whatever it is. You are not unique in your sin, whatever it is. So don't hold that up as an excuse as to why you can't fight. Or you can't overcome. Christ has overcome so that you can. And he has done it for you and for others. He says it's common. But he also says, for those who are in Christ, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our capacity to remain faithful. Dare I say that God may allow or even lead us into wilderness to be tempted. But he will go with you there. And he will provide you a way to endure and escape it. This is grace. And your unfaithfulness, therefore, is not his fault, but your faithfulness is. Catch that? He will strengthen you and give you all the opportunity and what you need to be faithful. So we are without excuse. But even if we are unfaithful, He is there. That's the beauty of grace. So let's close it out to like this specific situation because He's gone through all these temptations and He's going to now kind of like, okay, here's your way of escape, guys. This is what's going on. Here's your way of escape. 
And I think the overarching thing for us is this, and this is what I hope you really recognize, is that the seemingly harmless daily decisions that we make, how we interact at work, what we decide about our homes or our money, how we parent, how we relate in our marriages, any decisions we make, these harmless little, seemingly harmless decisions, maybe aren't so harmless if they have the potential to lead us to false worship. Here's how he closes it out. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from it. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not from, or not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What the snarf did he just say? Right? That's a lot. So let me clarify for you because he brings it all the way back to this experience at the feast. He says, flee from idolatry. In other words, he finally kind of comes to the place where he's like, you shouldn't go to the temple. You shouldn't go to the temple and partake in these feasts. Because it will lead you to idolatry. Now, he appeals to their wisdom because they're very wise. He says, I'm speaking to sensible people, right? I'm not speaking to the irrational weirdos who want to... Oh, he's like, I'm just speaking. Think about it, is what he's saying. The reasoning for his decision is obvious. And here's what he says. He compares what is happening at the temple feasts to what is happening at the Lord's table, right? Communion that we take every Sunday. And here's the comparison. At communion, I don't know if you understand this. Many of you in here go through communion as just a routine. This is what churches do. This is the zenith of our experience here. We could do nothing else. We wouldn't have to sing. We wouldn't have to have kids' church. We wouldn't have to even have a sermon. But if we have this, we have completed, if you will, the purpose of the gathering participating in the cross of Christ. So he goes, okay, this is what's happening. He compares it to the Lord's Supper. He says, at communion, you're doing much more than just taking bread and sipping juice or wine. He says, through the taking of the cup, when you take communion, guys, you are participating in the blood of Jesus. In some way, you are experiencing redemption Again, engage in redemption again every Sunday. That's why we do it every Sunday. And as we partake of the bread, we are identifying with the body of Christ. The body was broken, but the church. So when you, you are making confessions as you come here, I am forgiven, I am approved, I declare Jesus Lord, He is my Savior, and I am participating with a family. I am an adopted child, I am part of something, and they are a part of me. Amen. See, that's a little amen. So the communion experience is this. It's an act of family worship. It's an act of, it is the sign. Okay, this is the sign. Not the fact that we have connect cards. Not the fact that we've got mugs, which we don't. Not the fact that we have t-shirts or that we can say we all went to the church on Sunday on our Facebook pages. The thing, the sign, if you will, of fellowship is communion. Our act of true worship is communion, coming together, having this, quote, meal together. We have a new life in the Savior, and we have a shared life with the family. This is not just what we do, this is who we are. You don't do this at other gatherings of other communities. This is unique to the Christian faith. But Paul says the demons have their own table in this particular context. And their own fellowship. In other words, something more than the feast 
is happening at that temple. Even if this is just food, even if these idols are not real, is what he's saying, this is not an entirely meaningless activity that they're doing. There is no such thing as another God, but he says there are demons worshipped as gods. In reform circles, we probably don't talk about demons and spirituality enough. But this is what he says is behind false worship. The point of the issue is not whether the food is okay to eat or not, but it's the purpose of the feast. So we asked ourselves, right? And this is where I was like, oh, what are we going to do here? We don't have feasts to go to like this. Right? Don't worry, pastor. I'll stay away from the pagan festivals that are serving steak. No problem. Okay? How do we, where is this happening for us? Where are we worshiping idols in pagan feasts? Well, we're not, but here's what I will propose. In life, we will all have opportunities to engage in all kinds of activities with all kinds of different kinds of communities. There are activities in the world that we would consider recreation, whether it be sports and kids, whether it be social clubs, even jobs, or different organizations that are doing good community service. We'll have all kinds of opportunity to do those things. But I would argue that all too often, these good things, these seemingly harmless things, can actually become a Savior. It could become a Savior that we worship. It could become a source of identity. It could become a source of security and a place that we hope and sacrifice for. And many of these communities are actually becoming more and more, through their activities, an attempt to provide those things that God says the church is supposed to provide. The sense of community. The sense of um, dependence and love, even. So we're going to have to ask ourselves some very hard questions about the decisions we make on a daily basis and even the communities that we participate in and ask ourselves, are they drawing us closer to God and to God's people or taking us further away? Here's a great example. Take a job. Many will say, well, I have to work this job because of X, Y, Z. Okay. Very easily, a job can become a savior. Your job becomes the place that gives you your identity. The place that gives you your sense of security. The place where you give uh, sacrifice, your time, even away from your family and others so that you can be at that job to succeed or to grow, whatever. And I know a lot of people I have to do this. Before you say that, ask yourself if that is becoming maybe a replacement for Jesus who is supposed to be the one you get your identity in because if your job is taken away, you don't want to lose your identity. Or how many have worked jobs so hard and so long that we have to sacrifice community and involvement and engagement with the body of Christ? I'd go to church, I'd be with the church, I would go with that study, I would spend time fellowshipping, but I've got to work. And all I'm suggesting is that there are things that look good, good things that are good, that God has given. Work was part of the plan of God before the fall. But it can be Sports with kids, it can be education, it can be all kinds of things. And the question is, are these things that we are choosing to engage in, are they drawing us closer to the Savior, or are they replacing Him? Are they taking us deeper into connection with the community of God, or is it actually pushing us further away? Because that's what Paul is suggesting to them. It's like, yeah, you can go to the feast, it's, you, know, you have the freedom to do that, but what's it going to do to you? It's actually going to take you away from God, you're going to worship false gods in doing it. If any decision we make draws us away from God's Savior or replaces Him, or if your fellowship with some other community, some other organization, not to say they're evil, but if your participation in it, in fact, draws you away from God's people, if you've got to put them up against each other and one loses and one wins, better ask yourself some hard questions because what Paul says is that do you really want to run the risk of provoking the Lord as Israel did with your false worship? 
Now, notice I have not named a single organization or a single person, but some of you may be feeling a little bit of conviction in your heart about how you have identified more with an organization or some other group than you have the body of Christ. Or if you've sought for your identity in something more than you would Jesus. Without doubt, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So don't hear me just coming down hard saying, oh, don't do your evil things, you evil person. I believe that you can make a bad decision that dishonors God. But a bad decision that leads to sin is not the same as a deliberate one to sin. And I think we all need to ask ourselves what's going on. Because if we're too overconfident to say, that's not happening, I dare not ask myself that question. I dare not evaluate my life. That is the first step toward unbelief, as we saw with Israel. 23 says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Know this, as difficult or weird as it might sound, demons exploit everything. And the enemy will use whatever he can to tempt us to sin. He will even use our freedom. He will use our success. He will use our strengths. He will use our good desires and the things we enjoy. He will exploit every good thing and make it bad if it will cause us to worship something else other than Jesus or be a part of another community other than the body of Christ. Here's the last decision you need to, uh, things you need to ask yourself as you engage in these things. Will the decision help you worship Jesus? Will the decision help you enjoy Jesus more? Will the decision help you to trust Him more? Will the decision to participate draw you into Jesus' body more? Will the decision help you follow Jesus more? And if you can't affirm, say, yes, 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 then perhaps you shouldn't do it. Know that Jesus came to save us from religion or irreligion. He came to save us from ingratitude and all our fears. He came us came to save us from the fear of having to be right or to do right. How did he do that? He created a rightness over here and gave it to us. So don't hear me saying, oh, you've got to figure this out and be right. I do want you to, to lean on Christ and find your righteousness in him, but I also want us to please God in our righteousness. And that being worshiping him. As we take communion today, we're going to take it uniquely. As we do uh, once a month now, we take communion every Sunday, but... Once a month, we take it uniquely. And I'm glad we're taking it like this today. The way it works is we have goblets up here. And those are for heads of household. If you are um, by yourself and have a family, if you are as a couple and, and you're the head of a household, so you come and you take a chunk of bread and you take a goblet and you come back to your seat and we take communion as a family. If you are by yourself today, there's the single cups in the center for you. And again, you take bread and, and have communion by yourself. But as we confess as we take communion together, we'll have two songs. Please wait to take communion together after the second song. We'll come up and lead us in communion. This is a reminder of two things. A confession that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved from, from slavery to sin to slavery to God. To serve Him, and to enjoy Him, and to praise Him in all that we do. But the second thing we're confessing is that we are doing this as a family. That your identity, when you talk about who I am as a person, first and foremost, it is a son of God or a daughter of God. It is a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. But secondarily, it is a member of the body of Christ. It is a member of a family. And if on your list of things, that isn't number two, after being a Christian, then you don't understand your Christianity. That is where God has made you to thrive and to grow and to be blessed and to be cared for and to be a part of. It's not an addendum to Christianity. It is Christianity. Ephesians 5 said Jesus came to die for the church, not just for the individual person. We are the church, and we confess that together as the family of God. 